Check, check. Yeah. More Monday thoughts here. Hopefully not mundane, but Monday. What's the difference between Monday and mundane? It's just an illusion. You know, I, I talk sometimes about the illusion on here. Often from a Buddhist point of view, that life is illusory. And that's something that you can't quite understand unless you feel it or you've experienced certain sensations, just had certain experiences themselves. I don't feel like that can be intellectually transmitted. And it sounds like a bunch of hokey nonsense if you haven't experienced it, which so many things do. I am sure that a lot of people would hear the things I say, the things that people, my, the things that my friends say and say, that's a bunch of hokey nonsense. That might even be the nicest way they'd put it, a bunch of hokey nonsense. But there are so many things that you can't possibly not even understand because it's not about completely understanding them. We place way too much emphasis on understanding them. Like I either don't understand it or I understand it. But when it comes to sensations, when it comes to experiences, you don't necessarily understand it in the moment. Maybe you will later, maybe you won't. But you don't need an understanding to know something. And that's a huge point of confusion in our world today. The fact that knowledge has been conflated with some kind of comprehensive understanding. Comprehensive. That's strange to me that knowledge presumes comprehensive understanding, which is really the opposite of what knowledge is, awareness, experience. You don't understand everything you're aware of. But we put this pressure on ourselves to do that, to think that I have to understand this completely if I'm going to be aware of it, which is one reason why we see so much pressure on facts and experts. Listen to the experts. Listen to the people whose understanding is comprehensive. And if you say, well, their, their understanding isn't comprehensive for A, B, and C, people get upset. And experts are often people who have bought into the illusion even further than anybody else. Experts sometimes are the people who are entirely invested in an illusion. But again, to get back to just the idea that life itself is an illusion, that's hard to, to comprehend if you live in physical reality. You have very strong feelings. You interact with a material world. You know, this is all you know. And when you hear somebody suggest otherwise, it just, it sounds like they're trying to, it sounds like they're trying to give across a certain image of themselves. You know, some people are, you know, some people it is just hollow. You know, it's, it's, I mean, you look at spirituality itself and it's like, there are people who say the words that go along with a certain experience who haven't experienced that at all. That doesn't mean that other people who use those words or concepts haven't experienced that or become aware of it. But there are little moments in life where you do realize that life is an illusion or that aspects of life are an illusion. Because I don't completely understand it. You know, I, don't, I don't have some total view. But because I believe the, the macro can be understood through the micro that the microcosm is a reflection of the macrocosm and they mirror each other on a different scale as above, so below. Because I do, 
I mean, I can't, I, there's no way I, I would not be able to, even as an intellectual exercise, I don't think that I could stop thinking that way. I don't think that I can view things separate from that idea anymore. I really don't. I think that's so, it's not that I chose to, to be devoted to it. I'm so devoted to the idea that small things are, are reflected in larger things and vice versa. You know, I just, I don't know that I, I really truly can't separate that idea from my experience anymore. I just can't. Um, but the illusion, you know, you, you have these moments where you, you realize that there is something illusory. I mean, first, a lot of people see it in society. They see it in humanity and they stop there. That's sort of the postmodern viewpoint. It's like everything's constructed. Everything is arbitrary. Yet it's reinforced. And, and, you know, it's there's this kind of view that society itself is an illusion, which it is. And it's a pretty easy one to recognize. There's a reason why I think teenagers rebel against society, because one of the first realizations that a conscious person has is there's a bunch of bullshit around. And, and what is bullshit? It's an illusion. But a lot of people stop there. They stop at the idea that the government is an illusion. Society is an illusion. Our laws, many of the things that we concern ourselves with culturally, these are illusions. A lot of people come to that realization, but they kind of stop themselves there. And then they, they end up in this world where they're trying to change that. But they're trying to replace that with another illusion because they get invested in this other illusion that's an alternative to the big illusion that is society. But it turns out that's not the big illusion at all. And, you, and replacing an illusion with an illusion is, you know, describes a lot of our history, describes a lot of human, pretty much all human history. That's what a history book is. And I was talking in the, in the recent episode about how you know, when you look through history, you have a tendency to like, read. you'll read about ancient Egypt and be like, oh, yeah, this is how things were. Yeah, we don't have the total picture, but this is how things were. And it's like, it's a caricature of how things were. So that alone should tell you that a history book is just nothing but an illusion. And then if you want to go really deep, you could say that when people were actually alive in ancient Egypt they too were entertaining their own illusions about the world in which they lived. But you hear that and like intellectually, you're just like, yeah, yeah, life's an illusion, blah, blah, blah. And like maybe you see that reflected in society, institutions, corporations. It's very easy to recognize that those are just, because those things are, are, they're the thinnest illusions of, of all. Even though they're so powerful, even though they're so omnipresent, those are often the thinnest illusions at all. They're the easiest to see through. But it's harder to see through the illusions personally. But you do have little moments where it happens. You know, I know some people will cite psychedelics, but they become very attached to that. And I would never, I would not, I would say, you know, my experience with psychedelics as a teenager, I would never dismiss it outright and say, like, I would be, that would be a reactionary response on my part to say that, oh, psychedelics didn't matter at all to me. Psychedelics had no impact whatsoever. I never want to come across that way that I'm trying to say they had zero impact or they're completely unimportant, but they didn't play a pivotal role in my own realizations. But for a lot of people, they do. And for obvious reasons, because 
we tend to think of, of psychedelics providing us with new illusions, like, oh, you know, things look different, they sound different, our perception of the world is different, and that itself is an illusion. But people who, who talk extensively about psychedelics, you know, remind you that it's not just that psychedelics create new illusions for you to see or experience. It's that they show you that your everyday normal life is itself an illusion too. And the fact that you can experience something different with just this minor little influence. Like, yeah, you ingest this substance that causes your entire world to change. That's a big deal. But the fact that you can do that with just one little thing that goes in your body, that's insane. And it reinforces the fact that the life you live normally is illusory too. The fact that such a small influence, a, a substance, a material substance, possibly even a little tab that's been soaked in clear liquid, the fact that that, or a mushroom, a single, just a single part of a mushroom, you know, even if you're not tripping, even if you're not tripping hard, you tripping hard? Oh, I, I hear you tripping, are you tripping hard? Uh, even if you're not tripping hard, even just eating part of like a, a mushroom cap, a, a stem, you'll notice a difference in your perception. And, uh, but it, but it re reinforces the fact that the life you live normally can be changed in an instant. And that happens emotionally all the time, but people never get there with it. They never realize that their emotional reactions can often be as rooted in illusion as anything else. And you hear people, you hear spiritualists, you hear, you'll hear psychedelic, uh, psychonauts. Oh man, dude, I, I just know why I was born, dude, because I, I was meant to be a psychonaut. I was meant to be a psychonaut. I was meant to be a psycho. Not, not. Man, that's, isn't, isn't that just, <laughs> not to call anybody out, but isn't that just an unbearable modern personality the the guy who considers himself a psychonaut and will not shut up about psychedelics that's probably why i do have kind of a reactionary response to to psychonauts and psychedelics like the the value of psychedelics and the impact of them is self-evident in what they do and the way people talk about them but the person who decides that that's their entire identity even though they're doing all this advocacy which i think is ultimately good I believe the work I believe there's a net positive to psychedelic advocacy but that guy who who forms his personality around that just makes it so difficult for everybody else to deal with and they actually probably impede the, the cause a little bit uh but you know their motivations are I guess are good enough but anyway you know for some people like psychedelics do they are that moment in time but then just like I was talking about how in society there are many people who rebel against society in part because they say this is all an illusion. This is all BS. This is all a bunch of nonsense. And not just that, it's destructive nonsense. Society is doing all this. Society is an illusion, but it, it's a destructive illusion. Let's replace it with this. Let's change this. But it's like you're replacing it with other illusions. And a world, in, and a world that is fundamentally an illusion changes through the influence of other illusions inside of it, you know? So just because we're talking about this as an illusion doesn't mean that it's a static image. 
You know, we're not talking about a just like a, a freeze frame of a cartoon. You know, we're talking about an interactive, powerful illusion. We're talking about, you know, we're talking about something... I don't know. We're talking about the ultimate the illusion, you know, and, and that we ourselves, we ourselves become these little micro illusions, but in that as above, so below fashion, we mirror the larger illusion too. But, but anyway, just with, with, um, you know, I use the example of like the way that people try to, they rebel against the illusion of society, but they kind of stop there. They don't really extend that outward to the whole experience of life itself, the whole phenomenon of life itself. They kind of stop and say, like, society is the illusion, or this form of government is the illusion, and it's a destructive illusion, and let's replace it with my, my idea of a good illusion. And then more often than not, that becomes destructive, sometimes in the same exact way, other times in a, in a slightly different way. But that's kind of how I see people who are into psychedelics, where it's like they psychedelics give them access to a different perspective, and they they come back and they say, like, it turns out, not only was that an illusion, but life itself is an illusion. But they kind of use that to dismiss the power of life. And just because you can ingest this material substance that makes you see, oh, dude, Dude, like, I was sitting there and, like, I saw, like, just this light, this, like, stream of light go across the periphery of my vision. Dude, acid is crazy. I I saw a light on my ceiling that didn't exist. Dude, like, that tree, it kind of, like, wiggled in a way. It's funny, like, like we we play so much, it's that, oh, my God, my mind is blown. And it's funny that we don't appreciate the countless ways that reality itself does that. It's like, dude, I, I just... And, and we come attached to that experience. Like, that's why I, I have a very difficult time with people who make psychedelics their platform. Like, especially in a spiritual context. Like, there's a guy I really like who does a show, and he, he discusses Buddhism, he discusses esoteric spirituality. I consider him, I don't know him, and he's far more well-known than I am, but just in terms of, like, what, how he views the world, I see him as something of a peer. Like, I believe this guy and I have, have a similar perception of the world around us. And for that reason, I'm a fan. And, and because he's a good guy, he, he comes across as a very decent guy. But he continually circles back to psychedelics. And I'm, a, I'm of course, doing that right now. But I know that one thing that I don't over-talk about among the list of other things that I do over talk about. I don't I don't talk too much about psychedelics on this show. That's as much by design as much as just that I don't really have a desire to do it, but when we're talking about illusions, I think it, it's it, it's a necessary part of that because it it is one of the core ways that people realize life itself is illusory. But just like people who see society or government as an illusion and want to replace that with their own illusion, I kind of see people who are obsessed with psychedelics the same way, where they're like, where they, they, they encourage psychedelic use. And they, like I said, they, they, it kind of becomes their platform. It becomes their personality. And they think that recognizing the illusion of life depends on inserting this other illusion, which is the psychedelic experience. And many people can access those realizations without psychedelics, and that's been the case for me. You know, someone might look at me and be like, well, you took psychedelics when you were like 17, you, 
years old and you, you took them a number of more times until you were in your early 20s or even later. I, you know, even I took acid. I've only had like one true, I, I've, took, I've taken acid a bunch of times, but I've only had one actual trip. Like every other time it was either like somebody gave me a micro dose or just it, not, nothing ended up happening. And uh, there was one time there where somebody gave me a tab of acid. I think I was 28 or 29. It was like long after I'd started doing this show, but I think it was when I was on a break from this show. But somebody gave me a tab of acid at a bar, and I, I went home, and I, I it was just one tab, but I tripped. It was a great experience. I just thought about Russia the entire time. I I was listening to metal records and just laying flat on my back on the couch. And... Um, there was a vi- there was there was a visual component, but relatively minor. But just my general perception, it was a very clean experience. It was, and it had been years. Like I had taken mushrooms a number of times when I was younger. Had plenty of mushroom trips in my teens and early twenties, but uh, it was a far more clean experience. Like the problem with mushrooms, it al- it always felt like this organic residue emanating from my stomach, which is exactly what it is. And it kind of made it feel dirty or, or just, I don't know, I don't entirely like that feeling. I don't really like digesting something and feeling it emanate from my stomach into my, the rest of me. But with this acid tab, it was very clear. It felt very cerebral, which I liked. But I, I had no desire to chase it down after that and become, you know, become, uh, you know, hinged on that. But taking like there was it was an interesting trip, just like while we're on psychedelics, I might as well talk about it because... I was listening to these metal records, mostly Eastern European, some personal classics as well as some others, and I would just lay down on my bed and just, you could really, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but you could really feel it inside of you. And I've had that experience with mushrooms too, of like truly feeling the music. Turns out you can experience that in your day-to-day life, and when you love music, that is what you're feeling. It's just that you're so used to your normal perception, your normal sober perception, that it feels differently. You're not you're not aware of of what that what is actually going on inside of you, because when because the difference is like when you're tripping, you're looking at everything. You're you're deliberately looking at things as if they're going to be different. Like you know that you took a drug, so you're going through it saying, "I'm expecting things to be different, so I'm going to notice when they are." And that that applies to all of your inward feelings too, where you're thinking. Okay, because I'm experiencing something different, like there is something that is going to fundamentally alter my reality for a number of hours. And because of that, you're looking at every single thing you feel, every single thing you see, everything you hear with that in mind. It's awareness again. It's noticing. The difference is when you're in your day-to-day life, you're thinking, this is normal. And you're not paying attention to things because you're just thinking, this is normal and I know how all this works. Well, it's an illusion too. And if you remove yourself from that way of thinking in your normal life, you start to realize that, oh yeah, you know, when I really, when music really resonates with me, you know what? I am feeling that. I, it, it is somehow manifesting inside of me. It's just that when you're tripping, you know, your, your mind is altered and you're also looking for those sorts of sensations. So you find them. And I'm not going to say it's easy. Like, I'm not going to say you can get that same experience in sober reality. At no point am I trying to say, like, what do you mean drugs are fun? You know, what, what do you mean drugs do X, Y, or Z? 
You know, you can just experience that sober. You know, no, it's not completely true. I mean, for me, for example, music is never quite as good to me without marijuana. It's just a fact. I would love it if that wasn't true. Trust me. And I still love music without marijuana. I don't depend on marijuana for music. But no matter what, music is substantially better with marijuana. That's my experience. It has never changed. It's not a reason to smoke weed. And what's interesting is my friend in high school, Steve, he got caught by his very Christian, but cool. They were cool. They were very open-minded, cool people. But his parents were right-wing evangelical Christians, and they caught him with, they caught him and another friend with the bong. And his dad took a really good approach for a guy who didn't agree with what his son was doing. His dad took a very interesting approach, and he, like, he pulled him off to the side. I don't know if it was in the moment or later, but he, he pulled him off to the side like without his mom, without anybody else, and he was just like, I just want to know why you, you, want, you smoke weed. He's like, I just want to know why. And Steve just said, music. <laughs> and it, it was just an honest response. It was like, I smoke it because I love listening to music. And his dad was a big fan of music, and you know... You know, it's just funny. And, you know, it's funny. His dad was a huge Van Halen fan. And they had a Van Halen box set. And his dad was like a nature guy. He was, he was like, he was not a rocker or anything. He was like this very earthy nature guy who hiked and climbed mountains and stuff. But he happened to love Van Halen. And we were listening to the Van Halen box set while stoned one time. And it was like, there was live material on it. And there's a part where, I guess it's probably Sammy Hager. Hagar. Hager, Hager. Hagar, Hagar, where Sammy Hagar goes, this is one of those songs where, you know, you just want to have a party and, and throw about a, put a pound of weed on the fire and just get everybody stoned. I'm, I'm not even kidding. There's some Van Halen live album where he says that. He's like, this is one of those songs. Like, I've never even thought, as someone who smoked marijuana since I was a teenager, I've never thought about like, yeah, I just like to have a party where I throw a pound of weed on the fire. But Sammy Hagar said that before a song. I think it was Van Halen. It had to have been. And we just laughed. And it's funny, though, that my friend's dad, who, like, didn't understand weed and was asking his son, like, I just want to know why you smoke weed. Like, I just, I just kind of want to understand it. Which he, I think he, he earnestly wanted to know. He wasn't demonizing his son or anything. But it's funny to me that, like, in his spare time, he listens to Van Halen record, live records, where they talk about throwing weed on the fire, which I never would have thought of Van Halen. Like, Van Halen talks about smoking a bunch of weed. Like, of course, of course they would have 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 experienced it although isn't eddie van Halen wasn't he sober or something wasn't he one of those guys maybe maybe i'm thinking of ted nugent but anyway uh with psychedelics you know it's like you know i'm not going to say that that experience isn't unique to psychedelics i'm just saying that the sensation itself is something you can experience in waking life but it's not just that waking life is normal it's not just that sobriety is normal you're constantly reminding yourself that it's normal. And other people are reminding you of that too, even though you have endless evidence otherwise. Even though you know, deep down, you know this isn't normal because that really has no definition. And so for some people, just to, to wrap that up, I don't have too much more to say about drugs, but psychedelics and weed or, you know, any, any, any number of other substances that engage that part of your brain or give you alternate perspectives, you know, those, of course, are going to reveal some element of illusion to life. But I think people get too hinged on them. 
I think people see those. It's like, oh, that's a material substance that changes the material world around me or changes my perception of it. But that's kind of where it begins and ends. But you, if you're open to it and you actually think about it, there are endless situations that remind you of the illusory nature of things. Synchronicity, I won't go on about synchronicity, but just the experience of synchronicity itself, to me, is a reminder of the greater illusion. When there's odd synchronicity between events, between information and data, when it defies statistical probability and it feels meaningful in particular... You know, that to me is a reminder of the illusion. It's it's a reminder of the connection, first and foremost. When people look at synchronicity and they're like, what does it mean? They look at an individual synchronicity and they're like, what does this mean? How can I interpret this? What's the symbolism? That's no different to me than somebody looking at a painting and being like, oh, I think the cat is rubbing its legs on, on the chair to signify that the guy sitting in the chair is distracted by pussy. You know, it's like... I wish people interpreted it like that, but, um, you know, that's how I feel when people like are analyzing an, like a, a, a specific instance of synchronicity where they're like, you know, like I was thinking about trees and I got a text message from a friend who said that today they had to cut down a tree in his yard. And then I was watching TV and I saw a tree, you know, it's like, I wonder, I think that means that uh, next Earth Day, I need to plant a tree. You know, it's like like people will analyze synchronicity that way. And it's like, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think sometimes synchronicity just screams a message at you. I really do believe sometimes it just screams a meaningful message. Although that's rare. And I think in, in the grand scheme of things, that synchronicity is there to remind you of the deep interconnection between everything. And it connects seemingly random things and presents that to you just as a reminder that everything ties back. Everything is part of the same knot with a K, K K-N-O-T. And, uh, but synchronicity as a whole, it's communicating connection, but it's also communicating the illusion too. Because the fact that seemingly unrelated random ideas and events and data can be connected just randomly, just just out of nowhere, that kind of tells you there's an illusion to the there's the structures that you think rule our world are an illusion. And if you've ever had somebody fight you about synchronicity, and I don't mean physically, although I wish, I don't think I can consider my life fully I don't think I can consider my life well lived unless I get in a fist fight about synchronicity but you know I've had that experience where like I try at this point in my life I don't hammer at home when they happen they happen I kind of forget about them and move on you know I just I kind of I, I smile or I just go oh there we go and I move on and I always heard people say that that was the right approach to take but I do think you have to go through a phase of kind of exciting being excited basically celebrating synchronicity, but it's very easy to get attached to them that way. It's very easy to read too far into them that way. But I have had like adventures with friends and even dear friends where 
is just one synchronicity after another. And that's often, people will refer to them as signposts, like you're going in the right direction. Not necessarily a happy or good direction, but a necessary direction, which is why sometimes you experience synchronicity when you're actually doing something dark or engaged in something bad for you. But it's a lesson. You're actually, you're doing what you're supposed to do. It's necessary, but not necessarily good for you. But the fact that it's necessary will make it good for you long term. So sometimes you have to look at that. But I've been on adventures before. I've gone on trips. I've had, because the thing about synchronicity is like you can feel crazy when you just experience them alone, but you will experience them with other people where you look at each other and you're like, because you experienced this with me, we know we're both not crazy. Or if we're crazy, at least our our insanity is synced up, you know, right now. But you'll experience them with other people, and the best possible outcome is the other person is like, whoa, yeah, I noticed that too. Isn't that weird? And you don't, sit, you don't use that as an opportunity to, to sit there and analyze it. You just confirm it with each other. You go, oh, yeah, that came up again. Wow, can you believe that's come up five times today? Can you believe that everywhere we go? I've experienced that with certain people in certain situations many times. And that's how you know you're not crazy, too, because it's like this other person experienced it with me. But sometimes you're with somebody, and this is far more common with people who worship the microscope. This is far more common with people who pray, you know, to them. It's, it's, it's just the science fetishists, people who fetishize science and worship at the altar of science. They're the most likely people to say, it's just statistical probability. That's, that didn't happen. They, it's funny because like, even though science itself should show you how much of an illusion life is, the fact that we can manipulate life the way we do using science, the fact that we can get the vantage point we have on life, big and small, through science, science it sh- itself sh- should show you the illusory nature of reality, just as psychedelics do, just as spirituality does, just as creativity does just as synchronicity does, but people who have invested themselves in science, a certain sort of person, is trying to say that that's, everything is an illusion except for science. That's one of their core arguments, and that's one of the biggest problems I have with our culture today, especially on the left, philosophically. Like, when you get beyond all the political stuff I complain about, all the culture war stuff, one of the biggest philosophical problems I have with modern liberalism is this idea that science is the absolute reality. We know that it's not. We know that it's not. Prove it. Can you prove that? If you look in the microscope, you know, and science also shows us the as above, so below principle. But it shows you how important perspective is is in all this. And there's a certain sort of person that that sees the world that way. They see science as the absolute reality. They see STEM as the only processes we have to truly understand our world. Maybe I'm exaggerating. You know, there's a spectrum. It's It's not just one type of person I'm referring to here. It's a spectrum of thought. But still, you can see certain patterns and trends with the way people think today. And when those people experience synchronicity, even if it's with you, even if it's repeat, they get very hostile about it. And I understand when someone's being annoying. Like it'd be like if, if I was hanging out with somebody and synchronicity was recurring 
and and I'm just like, dude, let's talk about synchronicity, dude, dude, let's talk about synchronicity all day. It's another one. It's another one. Oh, what does this mean? I could see somebody giving pushback on that. I can see somebody being like, I'm getting a little sick of you. But there's a certain sort of person who, even if it's brought up, even if you simply say, whoa, isn't it weird that that happened? They'll go, no. Even if you just give a passing acknowledgement of the synchronicity, there's a certain sort of person who is mad about it. They go, you say, Did, whoa, hey, that came up again. Isn't that weird? No. They, they're scared of it. And honestly, I've tried to figure out what that is. And, and I mean, obviously, it challenges their view of reality. But I think what they're scared of is the illusory nature of reality. I think they are terrified of anything that reinforces that. And you think about like, like people who have bad trips and, and bad, I mean, people have bad trips on weed all the time. I don't understand why that isn't talked about more. A lot of people have seriously bad trips just when they smoke weed, whether it's for the first time or whether, I mean, for me, that didn't happen until way later. Like with weed, it wasn't until I was probably in my mid twenties, late twenties that I started to have bad trips when I would smoke weed. And I still do sometimes, but it's kind of fun. Once you know what that is, it's kind of fun where your anxiety just takes hold of you. But part of that is even just like sometimes you're reminded of, of the illusory nature of reality, but you can't, you can't separate yourself from the investment you have in, in your day-to-day life. And so it's like having to reconcile the illusion with your investment in one particular side of that illusion is a very difficult thing to do. And so the result is going to be a couple hours of anxiety at least. But the sort of person who is like, just, they try to shut down anything that comes across remotely mystical, regardless of how you frame it. They feel the need to rationalize it. They feel the need to dismiss it. And that's a a shitty experience. I hate it when that happens. But I also see them doing a service. Like when someone is like that, they're showing something to you. One, they're showing that they don't want to acknowledge the illusion. And in turn, they're saying the synchronicity itself, that's the illusion, not life. When they try to shut down, like when they try to like dismiss an acknowledgement of synchronicity or anything that could potentially be interpreted as mystical, something that transcends our normal understanding of how things work. When they try to shut that down, what they're trying to say is that's an isolated incident that we can call a coincidence or simply a matter of statistical probability. But the reason they're isolating it that way is because they don't want to acknowledge that reality itself, the Dharma itself, operates on the same principle. And that that thing is a microcosm of the larger macrocosm that is reality. When you experience a synchronicity, that is a microcosm of the macrocosm that is our total experience, that is, I, I don't know how much larger I can go, I'll just say our total experience, the wholeness. And the fact that it illustrates connectivity fits perfectly with that idea. I'm not claiming to understand it, but I do feel like I have reached a point with that where I kind of I kind of see where it fits in, at least as far as my own view goes. But of course, people are going to fight that. People are going to push back hard on that idea because they don't want their own. 
they it, it's too much for them to acknowledge that reality is an illusion too it's too much not because they're weak it's just too much and you know not everybody can do that either because like i don't come from the point of view that everybody needs to see things this way you know i mean there are schizophrenic people who cannot function in society who know this there are people who would hear me describe this and say oh he's schizophrenic he has this guess what you can't i'm i'm undiagnosable guys sorry i know we live in an age of diagnosis I was talking to my friend Johanna about this, Joe, about how, like, she was talking about how her coworkers have this need, like, like they have a coworker who's kind of a nerdy, quiet guy who's very focused, and how the coworkers have, like, speculated behind his back that he's autistic. And, you know, we planted these ideas about psychology in the public's mind, these ideas that used to be you know, you used to have to go to a professional to receive some kind of diagnosis. And those diagnoses change. You know, at one point it was like you would go to the priest and he might feel that you're possessed or tainted by dark forces. And then he has a process for getting you out of that that did work for some people. People forget about that. Like they look at the absurdities of demonic possession and religious intervention and exorcism. And they tend to look at that and like look at the absurdity of it. And that exists. It is, there is something very absurd about it. But the, you will find people who were also helped by it. And that's kind of how I see modern psychology, where it's this tool that we have based on our current understanding that can help people. And those diagnoses can help people too. But we've extended, we've, we've turned everybody into an armchair psychologist, an armchair psychiatrist, because so much of that conversation is in pop culture, and it is an example of the feminization that I was talking about, because it's primarily women who are doing this. Like, women were introduced to the idea, people in general, but I see this very, it's, it's much more common with women, where because we can understand people partially through diagnosis today we go out in the world and try to diagnose everybody because we think that will enhance our understanding of them when in reality it confines them you know a diagnosis should only be used in the context of uh, some sort of helpful process because it's pretty much meaningless without that and that helpful process, I mean, it could be just like, you know, when you see a raving lunatic on the street, just being like, oh, he's schizophrenic or he's crazy. I, I, I don't try to diagnose even homeless people. I don't know. I don't, it's, you don't know if they're on drugs. I just know that person is out of their mind and I'm going to go to the other side of the street. But you can see where it's a helpful tool for understanding even like people around us. But the problem is, like anything, it becomes religious. We start to classify everything that way. We, th we start to think that the illusory reality we live in is actually based on those ideas. Those are placeholder words, guys. Schizophrenia is a placeholder word. Depression is a placeholder word. I know right now it seems very, very real. And, like, we'll always believe in those things. Like, that will always be the way that we have to understand our, our own internal psychology and the psychology of others. It's, that's wrong. That's wrong. It's what we have right now, and it's a helpful tool. But like any tool, it's prone to abuse. It's, it's prone to deliberate manipulation. 
it, people put blinders on and they see the world strictly in those terms. And just like my friend talking about like how, because autism was planted in people's brains, like we've all, we've known about autism for decades. I mean, maybe longer. I don't, I don't know the history of, of the term autism, but it's like, it's been in pop culture for decades, but you didn't hear about it much. You never heard the, the term autism thrown around when I was growing up. Even when I was a teenager and a young adult, you almost never heard. I noticed probably in my mid-20s, I noticed a major creep. A major creep. I noticed a major like creep up, creep up in use of terms like autism and Asperger's. And, and of course, the spectrum, the spectrum. You know, I started to notice that that started to enter conversation more. I had a coworker with an autistic son, and she used to always talk about the spectrum and all this. And, you know, her son was very, very different. I think he was autistic. I think that was an accurate way of understanding him. And she used it as a tool because she knew the way he was and it followed a pattern because that's what these are. These are patterns. They're not arbitrary. But when we as the public become familiar with these terms and they're reinforced by pop culture and we're reading pop psychology arguments and conversations with people involved these terms and these diagnoses, people start just throwing them out. They start just trying to diagnose people. And they do that especially when someone's beliefs or ideas conflict with their own idea of what real reality is. And that's why, like, a lot of the things that I might say on this show, I don't, while I don't have a persecution complex about it, and I'm not a bug chaser who wants people to look at this, look at me this way, I know from my own personal experience on the rare occasions that I really open up with random people, or, or not even random people, but, like, I know from my own experience opening up about these subjects with friends especially and acquaintances that... They have a need to shut my way of thinking down. Not that they do that oppressively. Not that they do that. They they come across scared. And I've never been accused of having a mental illness. Who knows what people say behind my back? I, I good luck diagnosing me. Like like my friend Miles said when he first met me. I I have no idea. <laughs> I, I have no idea what your diagnosis is. Uh, you know, and I take a certain pride in that. Obviously. Because I think you can push yourself. You can like, you can gain new perspectives and vantage points. You just have to do so very carefully or you, you can go crazy. You can lose it. You have to have discipline and practices that ground you. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, I have noticed a, a pattern with people where it's like, if you even flirt with some of the things I'm saying in this episode here, there's a tendency for people to be like, oh, that's magical thinking. I had a friend say that to me once. He said, that's magical thinking. And it's like the idea of magical thinking is magical thinking, dude. Which sounds really silly, but that's, that's another hot topic shirt. I'm coming, coming up with all these new hot topic shirt ideas. But dude, the idea of magical thinking is magical thinking. It is, though. The entire concept, the fact that that's an illusion unto itself. It's a way of trying to understand that. And like, I hear magical thinking and I'm like, yeah. But then when you realize that that's an actual term, that's an actual phrase they use to refer to outlandish thinking, especially among certain mental 
diagnoses, you know, it's, it's, you know, oh, that actually refers to, it's, it's a way of limiting somebody. That's a way of branding their thinking. Whereas when I just hear the term magical thinking objectively outside of context, I'm just like, heck yeah, heck yeah, it's magical thinking. That's how I feel. (laughs) But I've had people say things like that to me, and I've had people say things like, the science doesn't back that up. Actually, it was the same person who said both of those to me, unsurprisingly. And and the latter conversation was about the strength of men and women, so that should tell you something. The latter conversation, it was, this is around 2016, I was having, we were having a conversation about the physical strength of men and women. We weren't even talking about any like transgender stuff. We were simply talking about the physical strength of men and women. And I, I was, I just, you know, I was stating the obvious. I was stating the water is wet comment that men on average are stronger. And somebody actually said, well, the science doesn't back that up. And that just shows you how, that shows you that science itself is an illusion right there. The fact that somebody would say that, it's like you're not even, your science means whatever you want it to mean, which is the risk you run when you believe in an illusion, is the illusion starts to take whatever shape you want it to. So that, that's just something to be aware of, is just the way that we, the fear that people have. And rightful fear, because thinking about these things can make you lose it. Like, we've all known somebody who either, maybe they took too many drugs, which is another reason why I don't think drugs are the right approach. There's a, another reason why I'm not, like, some psycho, not psychedelic advocate, is because, like, we've, we've all known somebody who's, who's gotten attached to that, or they've been worse off for, for getting super into psychedelics. Like, they've just been worse off for that. Um, so it's like, I don't, I I don't like putting, I don't like putting the emphasis on any one approach, but I know through my own approach, it's just, it's something that you can only experience and that people are right to be, I, I think, I think a certain amount of fear is necessary. Like I fear these things too. You know, that's the thing is like, I, I, I still have a certain amount of reservation and fear even knowing that this is an illusion, even knowing that the Dharma is an illusion, even though it's all we have, you know, it's, I still have a certain fear of that because I'm a human being and I do have practical needs. I do have to do certain things. There is a way that we have to play the game. And I think that's the risk you run when you start seeing the world this way is that you can easily start saying, hey, I don't, I don't have to play the game at all. Or you can manipulate the game. And that's worst of all. That's what you see. Because like when you see somebody who's like a spiritual leader or guru or a cult leader and they're obviously manipulating people, it's not that that person didn't come to those realizations. It's just that they came to those realizations in many cases and decided to manipulate people using them, or decided to benefit from them. I mean, that's Charles Manson. Like, if you listen to Charles Manson interviews, Charles Manson's mind was legitimately blown. How and when, I don't know. But Charles Manson's mind was blown. Charles Manson is, is a, is, was a spiritually advanced being who knows things about 
this very subject, the illusory nature of reality. Charles Manson knows more about the illusory nature of reality than anybody. That doesn't mean that he was suited to lead a group of young people. That doesn't mean he was a good person. But I think people make that mistake. They have a tendency to go, oh, because this guy was a cult leader, because this guy was a psycho, not a psycho, not, but a psycho, that means that he didn't know anything. Oh, because this guy led a cult and he misled people, he convinced these people to kill themselves. That means that he himself was lying about his own understanding of reality. No, that's not true always. Maybe sometimes. But I do think certain spiritual gurus, I think certain, just even just anybody who delves into spirituality. I was reading a book about a woman who traveled to India and met with a guru there. And while she was there, she met a young British man who was going around claiming he was Jesus. He had had a real spiritual epiphany. And she talked about how she could see that in his eyes. Like, you can always see it in their eyes. Uh, How she could see in his eyes and hear in his voice that he had had an authentic spiritual epiphany, but it had cracked him. And he thought he was Jesus. And what's amazing is even there in India, he had convinced a small group of people that he was, in fact, the reincarnation of Jesus. And so those are the sorts of risks you run with this stuff, is you can easily become delusional. You can you recognize the illusory nature of reality, and then you end up doubling down on an even greater illusion. And so this stuff is scary, and so people who are hesitant to acknowledge, even in the form of, like, cosmic coincidence, like synchronicity, I understand why people are hesitant. It's not like I'm sitting here saying, like, oh, you know, when science-minded people tell you to shut up when you want to talk about synchronicity or inexplicable phenomena or psychic phenomena. Like when they tell you to shut up, it's not like I'm sitting here thinking, God, they're evil. Oh my God, I have no idea where they're coming from. They're coming from a place of fear. And they might not admit that. They would say, no, it's a place of rationality. Well, anytime you have to rely on rationality, anytime you use rationality as a weapon... You're doing so out of fear, because why else do you use weapons? Even if you're being proactive, a weapon's use is always rooted in fear. So when someone uses science, rationality, logic, you ever heard of logic? You know, when someone uses that as a weapon, it's because they're fearful. And not everybody can go, you know, everybody has their own ways of comprehending reality and you know, there, there are people who are science-minded who don't do this. There are actual scientists who don't feel the need to challenge everything that falls outside of the... that falls outside of the understandings we've reached through the scientific process, through the scientific method. There are scientists who are very open-minded, you know. I, I want to remind people of that. I want to remind people that I'm open-minded about science and scientists, but I'm talking about a a trend, a a pattern, an entire philosophy that has developed that is actively trying to strangle everything else out of existence and tell you that those are all illusions and this is the reality, which is what the cult of science, which is increasingly becoming a mainstream religion, is a mainstream religion. That's what I don't like about it. But you have little experience. You have, you have personal experiences. Because we, we tend to look at these through the lens of like, oh, well, 
you know, uh, I'm looking at thing. I'm looking at the bigger picture. But the whole idea between between the uh, the whole idea with the microcosm and the macrocosm is that you understand the bigger picture through the smaller pictures, through your own experiences. It's why self-help, like even self-help that has no spiritual leaning, tells you to start with yourself and work outward, and you will impact the world that way. That itself is that relationship between the microcosm and the macrocosm. Not that you need to improve yourself to a point where you can actually go out and physically help the world, but the idea is that by you simply getting your own shit straight, you yourself are helping the world by that alone. Even if you never volunteer at a soup kitchen, even if you never build houses for poor people in Mexico, the very fact that you got yourself okay that you made yourself feel okay about life, that itself, that microcosm helps the macrocosm because you're less likely to go out and bother people. You're not going to do destructive things to people. You're only going to do the the destructive acts that are necessary to sustain yourself, hopefully. Because unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, who knows, let's get rid of those words entirely, we do have to commit certain acts of destruction in order to sustain ourselves. And that's one of our greatest dilemmas. It's why people have, it's why some people eat meat, other people don't eat meat. It's why we're so obsessed with like sustainable, building things out of sustainable materials. You know, there's a certain amount of destruction that every living being must act out to keep itself alive. And it's a reciprocal relationship because other things will destroy you or can destroy you. But one of life's greatest dilemmas is balancing that, like between necessary destruction and and unnecessary destruction. You know, it's hard. (laughs) It's hard to do. It's very hard. It's one of the it's why it's one of the, the biggest dilemmas we have. It's why diet is built into religion. It's why some religions even say you can't eat certain things. Um, but uh, let's see, with the the idea that certain, I don't know, I, I lost track, but I don't know, just certain things in your personal life will remind you of the illusory nature of the greater reality. And one of the greatest is death. And that's what I've told people about my mom's passing. You know, like right now, I forget about it sometimes. I forget that my mom's urn has ashes and little bits of bone in it. And it's like, what, like 15 feet away from me right now. I don't think about the fact that what remains of my mom's physical reality is in a little bag, in a wooden box, and that all that remains of her physical body is kind of like a sandy-looking... Because people don't know, that's a, that's a funny thing too, is you have no idea. Like you hear about cremation and you have a tendency to think like, oh, it looks like, it looks like ash. It's like black and, and gray ash, of course. I know what ash looks like. Until you had a living being cremated, you don't know what it looks like. Human ash does not look, animal ash. I mean, because I first learned this through having my cats cremated. Where having my cats cremated, like, you're like, oh, wow, like, this isn't just black and gray dust. This has a, this has an almost fleshy color to it. Of course, it's not flesh, but for whatever reason, the ash takes on that color. And then you see little bits of bone, some of them bigger than others. 
And you're like, wow, like some of that, no matter how hot it was, you know, through this process of incineration, there is still bits of bone in this. And then getting my mom's ashes was the same thing, except in a larger amount. And I sometimes forget that my mom's ashes are right over there. I'm just like, oh, wow, yeah, that's what remains of her. But I don't associate it with her. Because when someone dies in front of you, you realize that that body isn't them. And I was just thinking earlier today about how I spent very little time with my mom after she died. Where I was with her body and I had my own little moment. I had my moment with her body after she died. Like I, it was, but it was a matter of minutes. I didn't hang around for even an hour. Once she was dead, I knew she was dead. And my mom had taught me that. My mom, who had experienced death when she was younger and, and throughout her entire life, told me, like, this is just the body. I don't know where this poor farm girl got all these amazing ideas, but it shows you that if you're an open-minded person and you take life in, you kind of come to these understandings no matter what information is available to you. But she used to say, like, you know, once someone's gone, they're gone. Not in terms of the soul, because, like, she did believe in, in some in stuff that goes on after someone leaves their body, but just in terms of the body itself, like once the soul has left the body, once someone is dead, they're dead. And I realized that I was like, whether I, whether I stay with my mom's body for five minutes or an hour or a day, because the nurses say you can stay as long as you need to. But I was just like, this is just going to be me, me in this room. Like while I want to remember my mom and and her body and I want to, you know, touch her hair one last time. This is all about me. And that's what my mom taught me. She taught me that like our biggest struggle with death and grief is that we are the ones left behind to deal with it. And so being in that ER room in that intensive care unit, I was like, yeah, you know, at at the end of the day, I'm just a, I am by myself behind this curtain with the body of a person who is no longer here. And so the fact that somebody can go from here to gone while their body remains, that's a reinforcement of the illusion. Not that my mom was an illusion, not that I'm an illusion, you know, but you can see that, you know, the process of death, especially in the immediate, when death plays out before your very eyes, when you are touching somebody's body, when you're touching their hand, as you know, they beat their last heartbeat. They, it's like, what has changed? You know, and it, it challenges, it really, it really challenges your perception of reality when you experience that. Just as having them cremated does. And that's what's so funny to me about, about cremation is I'd heard, I'd heard this phrase thrown around before and I, I just assumed it was like some idea, somebody, I assumed it was a joke or something. But when you have your loved one cremated, they give you a disclaimer form. They give you like a, um, what do you call it? Like you have, to, you have to sign a form with a bunch of fine print, which is funny, which makes sense. Like, hey, we're going to burn your relative's body. We're going to burn your loved one's body. You really got to sign this form and, and make sure we got to make sure we're on the same page. here. We're going to provide a service where we incinerate your loved one's dead body. Let's make sure we're on the same page. Can you sign this form? I totally get it. 
But that form itself, when you read through it, it really emphasizes how fleeting this whole thing is and how, how we attach ourselves and how we create new illusions from the existing illusion. Because one of the statements that it makes very clear before you sign your name is it says explicitly, it makes these main points, and it, say, it says cremation is irreversible. There is a bolded point before you sign off on your relative's cremation that says cremation is irreversible, as if you needed to know that. But the fact that they even need to include that on the form is hilarious. The fact that they need to tell you cremation is, is irreversible. And like, you can see where like, a grief-stricken person might not be thinking rationally, especially if they have other issues. But they have to put that on the form because there is somebody who... Maybe somebody's even said it, you know, maybe it, maybe this comes from actual experience of people doing this, but there's somebody who probably is like, at the last minute is like, no, 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 I want to bury them. And it's like, hey, we already incinerated your mom, dude. And someone's like, fuck you. Fuck you. How'd you, yeah. You know, where someone is totally attached to the, to the physical they're totally attached to the material, but that's probably included in that. They, they probably have to give that disclaimer that cremation is irreversible because someone might be like, well, can you put her back together? What do you mean you can't reverse incineration? Can't you just put her back together? Or like, oh, no, I changed my mind at the last minute. Oh, no. You know, it's like people are focused on that. You know, they, they put that in there for a reason. But that itself should show you, like, if that doesn't crack your brain a little bit, like, if the process of cremation and the absurdity of signing a form, like, all of the formalities, all of the things you have to sign, they just enhance the fact that we've created a system of illusions in order to deal with the ultimate reality, which, I mean, Hellhammer, Celtic Frost, like, only death is real. It's not that only death is real, but... It's the thing that breaks the illusion. Death shatters the illusion. It's the only thing that is guaranteed to shatter that illusion. Only death is real. And when you've experienced a death, especially when you're like me and you're doing it all by yourself... Yeah, I had, I had some support from people, but I'm the only family member who lives down here. I was the only family member who lived by my mom. I was the closest to her. It was 100% on my shoulders. Is it's Even now, there's still stuff to do, and it's still on my shoulders. Nobody's, nobody's come out of the woodwork to help me, and I wouldn't expect them to in terms of just the practical arrangements and everything. I, I would ask, it, I, it's no great, there's no greater honor to me than this. I am glad that it was mine to deal with. I am glad that it was my situation to handle on my own. You know, I, I think I said this before, but it's like, you you gradually, le- like in an RPG, you gradually level up. It's like, oh, I'm I'm grinding, I'm fighting random enemies, and I level up here and there. Sometimes I try to do it deliberately, but it takes a lot of work. And then every once in a while in an RPG, you'll fight a really tough boss. And when you beat him, your characters each level up like 10 levels. That's what my mom's death was like. Not that I, you know, and I I have said before that I feel like I 
experienced a temporary enlightenment, and I'm not afraid to say that. I don't care if that makes me sound egotistical. During the first two weeks after my mom died, I felt like I was a being of pure light floating around. Everything made sense. Everything felt completely harmonious. I felt like I, I truly felt like I was one with the wholeness. And it wasn't delusion. It wasn't me coping. I was facing the reality every step of the way. But it really was one of those experiences that spiritually, mentally, I would never be able to pinpoint it to one single aspect. I mean, physically, for that matter, I felt like I leveled up massively in that one moment. And I think that's what a big death will do to you, especially when it's an, an inevitable death, the death of a parent. It's not that I would, I would never say that somebody who their child dies or their spouse dies would have the same experience or even someone with a different relationship with their parent. But I can say that for me personally, that was climbing to the top of a certain mountain, having somebody that you love more than anything, that you value more than anything, just be gone in an instant. And to be there and be the one person who's handling all of it. And crema- <laughs> cremation plays a big role in that, where you're like, it, it, it makes life surreal. And when things are surreal, they're a, a reminder that life is illusory. You know, that's what people are experiencing. Like when someone says, this is surreal, their reality is challenged. It is something that makes their perception of reality seem different. And sometimes people escape that. Sometimes people run from that. That's that fear. When you experience synchronicity with somebody and they say, no, no, it's not weird. No, it's not cool that that thing came up five times. They're experiencing something surreal and it's challenging their perception of reality and they hate it. And maybe they wouldn't be able to handle it anyway. Maybe they would lose their mind. Maybe they would be that babbling person who goes to India and thinks they're Jesus. You never know. You have to be very careful. There's a reason why all of these teachings tell you to have a, have a guru, have a teacher. To have a discipline and a practice. Because if you just enter into this chaotically and wildly, which is one reason why psychedelics are a problem, because that's that gives everybody access to some form of this experience, but they don't necessarily have any discipline. And they might even be approaching it from the point of view of a recreational drug, which I think is fine. Because that's another thing I hate about psychonauts, is they're always like, oh, no, it has to be with, you need a guide? And you need this. And it's like, no, I mean, I I approached psychedelics when I was a teenager. Like, I knew that it was going to be transcendental and different. But I also kind of casually approached it as I would just like a recreational experience. You shouldn't see it only that way. But I think you can and and you'll be fine. But but anyway, um, you know, so, so some people's brains can be cracked. But I mean, you can see where some people's brains are cracked by death. Like death makes life seem so surreal that that will crack people's brains. There's people who never get over a loved one's death. They ne- they don't level up because it just cracks their brain. It was too much for them to deal with. The illusion, instead of giving them insight into the illusion, it's like the illusion caved in. That's kind of what it's like when someone experiences a death that just ruins them forever. And... uh It happens with psychedelic experiences. 
Um, I mean, you can even see where, like, I was talking about infidelity a lot lately. Even though I have little, very little experience with it, just, you know, you know, like I myself have never cheated on somebody or anything like that. And I've never had it confirmed that somebody's cheated on me. You know, it may have happened. I don't know. But, you know, so I don't have some, like, you know, deeply... I don't have extensive experience with infidelity, but you can see where infidelity shatters people's reality. It shatters the illusion. You know, it can completely shatter the illusion someone has about the person they're with, the relationship they're in, and people don't recover from that. Sometimes they kill that person. Sometimes they kill themselves. Sometimes they, they remain bitter for the rest of their lives because instead of transcending the illusion or instead of transcending reality and acknowledging the greater illusion that we participate in, the illusion caves in around them and they become even more attached to the illusion. So that can easily happen with death, infidelity, anything that disrupts psychedelics, drugs, anything that disrupts the illusion that we all say is is normal everyday reality. But I'm not done with cremation yet. Got a little more to say about cremation. Death, <laughs> or not death, uh, cremation is irreversible. I laughed. I was sitting there in, in the morgue. No, I guess it wasn't the morgue. It was this funeral place. It was, it was, it's called Funeral Alternatives. So it's like they're not a normal funeral home, but they do cremation. And I was sitting there in this boardroom with all these decorative urns you can buy, which itself is absurd. Like you look, it's like this person has left their body and here's, here's a wall of urns you can purchase so that they can be materially represented in a way that you find cool or agreeable, which is awesome. I mean, I think it's wonderful. You know, I think it's cool that we choose deliberate urns to place the ashes of our loved ones in. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a nice way to commemorate them. But it, it does add to the surreal angle where you're, you're in this, it, it was a conference room. It was like a boardroom that I was in, and one of the walls had a bunch of urns you could buy and other ways to commemorate your loved ones. And I just, I laughed because I was just like, yeah, you know, like here I am, I'm thinking like, my mom is no longer in her body, so here's a new body. I'm going to buy her a box. I'm going to buy her a cool box to be in. And somebody ended up giving me a nice box, a wooden box. It's like a heart. Uh, I feel like it's, it's, it's kind of rustic. It's cool. I like it. Um, but that's a funny part of it. And then you read, you read this fine print. Meanwhile, you've experienced this truly transcendental ground shaking spiritual experience of loss, understanding epiphany. And you're reading this fine print where it's like, just so you know, cremation is irreversible and other fine print. Like you can't sue us because you paid us to incinerate your loved one. You know, it's just so funny. But then you have other experiences too. Like I remember like when they called me to come pick up her ashes, like they had cremated her. And in those days in between, you're sitting there thinking like, I don't actually know which day they're going to be cremating my mom. I don't know if it's going to be today or tomorrow. Like, I don't know the exact moment when somebody's going to take my mom's body, put it on a slab, I guess. And like push it into a fire. You know, like I don't even know when that's happening. <laughs> like you think about how controlling we are. Like, well, this is going to happen at this time and what time. And like how much of that is useless. It's just us trying to control our reality. And then you think about the fact that like, oh, this weekend, 
you know, a few days ago, my mom died and her body's been sitting in a freezer. I don't even know where they put bodies in the hospital. And then it's like they transported my mom's body and I don't even know which day, I don't even know which hour they're going to put my mom's body in an extremely hot fire and reduce her to ash so that I can come pick it up. And then they call you and then you come pick it up. And it's very emotional. Like I was crying, you know, uh, this was, it was the first time I had been with my mom's material form, even though it was now Ash, it was still her, her material form. So here I am, like, it's the first time I've been with my mom's material form since I left her body at the hospital. That's an emotional experience, to say the least. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I, I picked it up. It's all very, it's not very ceremonial, you know, they're nice and everything, but it's not very ceremonial and it doesn't need to be because the whole thing is the ceremony. Life is a ceremony, you know, the, the simple act of driving there and picking it up, that is enough ceremony for me. And then, uh, so I had to drive my mom's ashes home and you're driving there. And I had this thought, like I'm crying, I'm weeping and I'm glancing down at this box, this, this plastic urn, because they give it to you in kind of a, a plain box. And uh, you're, you're driving along, and like you're looking around, and people are going about their normal lives, and they have no idea that the guy next to them in traffic just picked up his mom's ashes, and that his mom's ashes are sitting on the passenger seat. You know, you have no idea, and they can't see that. And so that shows you that you are living in a different reality than those people in that moment. And they're all fixated on getting home. They're fixated on traffic. They might even be honking their horn. And they have no idea, like, because nobody fucked with me. But imagine if somebody had cut me off or tailgated me or gotten mad at me for something. You're getting mad at somebody who, who just picked up their mom's ashes and is driving around with their mom's ashes on the seat. Not even a psychopath who drives around with his mom's ashes regularly. Like, I'm not some freak who is like, come on, mom. We're going to put you, oh, got to wear your seatbelt. Like, I'm not Norman Bates here. This was a practical transport. Like, I was transporting my mom's ashes from the funeral parlor to, to my house. And, uh, you know, so it's not like I'm Norman Bates driving around with his mom's ashes on the seat for fun or so that she can, hey, mom, let's go see the sights. Jesus. <laughs> uh, hey, mom, you've been you've been inside for months. It's time to strap you into the car and go for a ride. You're not even not even looking at it from that angle. Oh, that exists. Talk about illusions. Ooh, that exists. But even just somebody transporting their mom's ashes. Home. Those people driving around have no idea. And if one of those people had messed with me, I wouldn't have gotten upset because the interesting thing about being in that state of mind, what I would call a temporary enlightenment, is all of the trivial stuff melted away instantly. Triviality melted away before it could even, before it could even bloom, you know, before it could even grow. Triviality just melted away because it just truly didn't matter. It shows you the power of the mind. You know, where it's just because this was going on within me, it became very evident what mattered and what didn't. And even when somebody tried to force a matter, like I think I mentioned on here, the first time I went to the grocery store after my mom died, it's within a day or two. I think it was a couple days after she died. I needed to get some things. 
And I was walking down, not even an aisle, but just the main section like that separates the aisles from the cash registers. And somebody kind of just stopped randomly. A woman, this older woman just stopped randomly. And so I just went around her. Because people, you know, as everybody knows, like people just stop and go and they're not very mindful of people around them. And she shamed me. She goes, we're stopping because there's somebody in a wheelchair right here and you have to walk by. And I just laughed and kept walking because it was like, in order to feel good about yourself because you were like giving space to somebody in a wheelchair, you just acted really mean to a guy who just watched his mom die. And that's, that's what self, that's self-righteousness in a nutshell. That is self-righteousness in a nutshell right there. It's you think you're being a good person because you're giving a few extra, you're, you're letting a, a person in a wheelchair go by you. Meanwhile, you use that as an opportunity to shake your finger at a guy who didn't even see the person in the wheelchair and just happened to go around you. You're shaming that guy who just went through the biggest, most severe tragedy of his life. Good thing you're a good person. Good thing you let that person in the wheelchair pass. Now, it just shows you self-righteousness inevitably puts you in that position. We're seeing it now with the mask thing, with the race stuff. We're seeing where you know people are doing that exact thing on a larger scale. It's like by by thinking that you're helping this one person... And then chastising somebody who, it turns out, just accidentally kept walking past you. You're accusing them of doing something deliberate. Meanwhile, you're, you're the nastiest person in this situation. You're the nastiest person in this situation. But the nice thing is, is given the state of mind I was in, that woman just melted into thin air. Because that woman, her, her little moral, her little moral stand, her little, her little self-righteous position in that grocery store was an illusion. So her trying to chastise me right after my mom died for not getting out of the way of a wheelchair person, it just melted away. It was because it was nothing. It was nothing. And, uh, but just thinking about like driving around with my mom's ashes on the seat, it's like, think about that next time you're out in public. Think about that when you're out driving around. Think about that when you have road rage. That person might be driving home from the funeral parlor with their mom's ashes on the passenger seat. And you have no way of knowing that. They're existing in a different reality, a much more pure reality than you are. Because I will say that. And that's not self-righteousness. I can just tell you, I think that I have the right to say that when you're driving your mom's ashes home from the funeral parlor less than a week after she died... You are in a purer state than anybody else on that road. And it's not about being virtuous. You are existing in a much more pure state. What matters? What's relevant? You're very aware of what what matters in that moment when you're in that position. And you see many things as an illusion. And you see where people get hung up on that illusion. You see where they're deeply invested in it. And they try to replace one illusion with another. And just being a human being, you have to, you, you can't ever escape these illusions. Because I think when you, when you convince yourself that you can completely escape them is when you succumb to them. Or you succumb to, to madness. 
or addiction or self-righteousness. You know, I, I think when you believe that you can actually escape the Dharma is when you set yourself up. And we're constantly trying to set each other up in that way too. And I think that's one of the issues with talking about the illusory nature is that when you bring up the fact that everything's an illusion, people assume that your point is, well, I mean, first of all, you shouldn't just bring that up with people. You should not just go, I don't go, trust me, I don't go around just telling people, oh, did you know everything's an illusion? You especially don't want to tell an upset person that. If somebody's grieving or upset or mad, you don't want to just be like, well, it's all an illusion anyway. You don't want to do that. But the thing is, when it comes up naturally or when things that you have to say kind of, you might not call life an illusion, but you might say something that kind of hints at that or reinforces that idea. And I think some of people's fear and some of the hostility that they have surrounding that idea comes from the fact that they think by mentioning the illusory nature of reality, you are saying we have to get rid of the illusion. Or that there's some kind of alternative that we can live out. And that's what some people kind of offer. That's what some snake oil salesmen offer. They're kind of like, everything else is an illusion, but I have the truth for you. Believe in this political cause. Believe in this religion. Oh, that band, they're posers. Listen to this band, because they're real. It's all an illusion. And I think when you point out the illusory nature of some things, whether it's something specific or the totality of life, people think that you're saying that at the expense of something. They think that you're pointing out the illusion at the expense of the illusion, which isn't necessarily true. I think there are some illusions you need to get rid of and get beyond. But I think when you mention that, people tend to think that you're offering an alternative that is more real. Guess what? I don't have anything more real to offer. I can't offer you anything more real than this illusion. Because I'm contending with it too. I'm living in it too. But you can embrace it. It's kind of like the nihilism, positive nihilism thing I've talked about, where we have this idea that, oh, nihilism, nothing matters. Everything is fleeting, temporary, impermanent, and thus illusory. So that means that I'm going to do everything as badly as I can. That means I'm going to stubbornly protest this illusion by succumbing to the worst that this illusion has to offer. I'm going to become the worst thing that this illusion has to offer. You know, some people take that approach to nihilism, whereas you can take a positive, a constructive nihilistic approach, which is if everything's an illusion, trying to do good and investing in a taking a constructive approach to the illusion. Why not? That's nihilistic too, in a way. You know, but it's, it's sort of a positive nihilism. It's a constructive nihilism. Because when people are full-blown nihilists and they're destructive about it, I mean, that's, that's no more... You know, destructive nihilism is no more true to the idea of nihilism than constructive nihilism is. If anything, neutrality is the most complementary approach to nihilism, which is pretty much Buddhism in a nutshell. 
Buddhism is pretty much saying, you know, you want to translate Buddhism in a way that people can easily understand it. I would say it is taking a neutral approach to the inevitable nihilism of human life. And you realize that it's not limited to human life, but the world around us, the existence that we have, it's our understanding of existence itself. So Buddhism is sort of a, a neutral response to nihilism. But people have it in their head that destruction, self-destruction, wasting away, being bad, being unhealthy, they think that that is somehow more true to the nihilistic nature of, of this existence when it's no more true than doing good things. And both of those are probably less true in some way than the neutrality that, just, that simply observes it. And you can treat it like a fun game. You know, I think doing, being healthy in the face of an illusion, doing the right thing in the face of an illusion ends up being a very fun game. This land is mine God gave this land to me this brave, this golden land to me. And when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains, I see a land where children can run free. 